Chapter Four of Arizona Nights by Stephen Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Cattle Rustlers. Dawn broke, so we descended through wet grasses to the canyon. Thereafter, some difficulty, we managed to start a fire, and so ate breakfast. The rain still pouring down on us. About nine o'clock, with miraculous suddenness, the torrent stopped. We began to turn cold. The cattleman and I decided to climb to the top of the butte after meat, which we entirely lacked. It was rather a stiff ascent, but once above the sheer cliffs we found ourselves in a rolling meadow tableland, a half-mile broad by, perhaps, a mile and a half in length. Grass grew high. Here and there were small live oaks, planted park-like. Slight and rounded ravines accommodated brooklets. As we walked back, the edges blended in the edges of the mesa across the canyon. The deep gorges which had heretofore seemed the most prominent elements of the scenery were lost. We stood, apparently, in the middle of a wide and undulating plain, diversified by little ridges, and running with a free sweep to the very foot of the snowy Galieros. It seemed as though we should be able to ride horseback in almost any given direction, yet we knew that ten minutes' walk would take us to the brink of most stupendous chasms, so deep that the water flowing in them hardly seemed to move, so rugged that only with the greatest difficulty could a horseman make his way through the country at all, and yet so ancient that the bottom supported forests, rich grasses, and rounded gentle knolls, it was a most astonishing set of double impressions. We succeeded in killing a nice fat white-tailed buck, and so returned to Camp Happy. The rain held off. We dug ditches, organized shelters, cooked a warm meal. For the next day we planned a bear hunt afoot, far up a Manzanita canyon where Uncle Jim knew of some holing-up caves. But when we awoke in the morning, we threw aside our coverings with some difficulty to look on a ground covered with snow, trees laden almost to the breaking point with snow and the air filled with it. No bear today, said the cattleman. No, agreed Uncle Jim dryly. No bar. And what's more, unless you are aiming to stop here somewhat of a spell, we'll have to make out today. We cooked with freezing fingers, ate while dodging avalanches from the trees, and packed reluctantly. The ropes were frozen, the hobble stiff, everything either crackling or wet. Finally the task was finished. We took a last swarming of the fingers and climbed on. The country was wonderfully beautiful, with the white not yet shaken from the trees and rock ledges. Also, it was wonderfully slippery. The snow was soft enough to ball under the horse's hoofs, so that most of the time the poor animals skated and stumbled along on stilts. Thus we made our way back over ground which, naked of these difficulties, we had considered bad enough. Imagine riding along a slant of rock shelving off to a bad tumble, so steep that your pony has to do more or less expert ankle work to keep from slipping off sideways. During the passage of that rock, you were apt to sit very light. Now cover it with several inches of snow. Stick a snowball in each hoof of your mount and try again. When you have ridden it, or its duplicate a few score of times, select a steep mountainside, cover it with round rocks the size of your head, and over that spread a concealing blanket of the same sticky snow. You are privileged to vary these to the limits of your imagination. Once across the divide, we ran into a new sort of trouble. You may remember that on our journey over we had been forced to travel for some distance in a narrow stream bed. During our passage we had scrambled up some rather steep and rough slopes, and hopped up some fairly high ledges. Now we found the heretofore dry bed flowing a good eight inches deep. The steep slopes had become cascades, the ledges waterfalls. When we came to them, we had to shoot the rapids as best we could, only to land with a plunk in an indeterminately deep pool at the bottom. Some of the pack horses went down, sousing again or unfortunate bedding, but by the grace of fortune not a saddle pony lost his feet, 
After a time the gorge widened. We came out into the box canyon with its trees. Here the water spread and shelled to a depth of only two or three inches. We splashed along gaily enough, for with the exception of an occasional quicksand or boggy spot, our troubles were over. Jed Parker and I happened to ride side by side, bringing up the rear and seeing to it that the pack animals did not stray or linger. As we passed the first of the rustlers' corrals, he called my attention to them. "'Go take a look,' said he. "'We only got those fellows out of here two years ago.' I rode over. At this point the rim rock broke to admit the ingress of a ravine into the main canyon. Riding a short distance up the ravine, I could see that it ended abruptly in a perpendicular cliff. As the sides also were precipitous, it became necessary only to build a fence across the entrance into the main canyon to become possessed of a corral completely closed in. Remembering the absolute invisibility of these sunken canyons until the rider is almost directly over them, and also the extreme roughness and remoteness of the district, I could see that the spot was admirably adapted to concealment. There's quite a yarn about the gang that held this hole, said Jed Parker to me, when I had ridden back to him. I'll tell you about it sometime. We climbed the hill, descended on the double R, built a fire in the stove, dried out and were happy. After a square meal, and a dry one, I reminded Jed Parker of his promise, and so, sitting cross-legged on his gun in the middle of the floor, he told us the following yarn. There's a good deal of romance been written about the bad man, and there's about the same amount of nonsense. The bad man is just a plain murderer, neither more nor less. He never does get into a real, good, plain, stain-up gunfight if he can possibly help it. His killings are done from behind a door, or when he's got his man dead to rights. There's Sam Cook. You've all heard of him. He had nerve, of course, and when he was backed into a corner he made good. He was sure sudden death with a gun. But when he went for a man deliberate, he didn't take no special chances. For a while he was marshal at Willets. Pretty soon it was noted that there was a heap of cases of resistant arrest, where Sam as marshal had to shoot, and that those cases almost always happened to be his personal enemies. Of course, that might be all right, but it looked suspicious. Then one day he killed poor old Max Schmidt out behind his own saloon, caught him out and shot him in the stomach. Said Max resisted arrest on a warrant for keeping open out of hours. That was a sweet warrant to take out in Willets, anyway. Mrs. Schmidt always claimed that she saw that deal played, and that, while they were talking perfectly peaceable, Cook let drive from the hip at about two yards' his range. Anyway, we decided we needed another marshal. Nothing else was ever done, for the vigilantes hadn't been formed, and your individual and decent citizen doesn't care to be marked by a gun of that stripe, leastwise unless he wants to go in for bad man methods and do a little ambushing on his own account. The point is, is that these year bad men are a low-down, miserable proposition, and plain cold-blooded murderers, willing to wait for a sure thing, and without no compunctions whatsoever. The bad man takes you unawares, when you're sleeping, or talking, or drinking, or looking to see what for a day it's going to be, anyway. He don't give you no show, and sooner or later he's going to get you in the safest and easiest way for himself. There ain't no romance about that. And until you've seen a few men called out of their shacks for a friendly conversation and shot when they happened to look away or asked for a drink of water and killed when they stooped to the spring or potted from behind as they go into a room, it's pretty hard to believe that any man could be so plumb lacking in fair play or pity or just natural humanity. As you boys know, I come in from Texas to Buck Johnson's about ten years back. I had a pretty good amount of ponies that I knew, and I hated to let them go at prices they were offering then. So I made up my mind to ride across and bring the men with me. It wasn't so awful far, and I figured that I'd like to take in what New Mexico looked like anyway. 
About down by Albuquerque, I tracked up with another outfit headed my way. There was five of them, three men and a woman, and a yearling baby. They had a dozen horses, and that was about all I could see. There was only two packed, and no wagon. I suppose the whole outfit, pots, pans, and kettles, was worth five dollars. It was just supper when I run across them, and it didn't take more than one look to discover that flour, coffee, sugar, and salt was all they carried. A yearling carcass, half-skinned, lay near, and the fry pan was full of meat. Howdy, strangers, says I, riding up. They nodded a little, but didn't say nothing. My horses fell to grazing, and I eased myself around in my saddle and made a cigarette. The men was tall, lank fellows, with kind of sullen faces and sly, shifty eyes. The woman was dirty and generally mussed up. I know that sort all right. Texas was getting too many fences for them. Having supper, says I, cheerful. One of them grunted yes at me, and after a while the biggest asked me very grudging if I wouldn't light and eat. I told them no, that I was traveling in the cool of the evening. You seem to have more meat than you need, though, says I. I could use a little of that. Help yourself, says they. It's a maverick we come across. I took a stake and noted that the hide had been mightily well cut to ribbons around the flanks and that the head was gone. Well, says I to the carcass, no one's going to be able to swear whether you're a maverick or not, but I bet you knew the feeling of a branding iron all right. I gave them a thank you and climbed on again. My horses acted some surprise at being gathered up again, but I couldn't help that. It looks like a plum imposition, Caballos, says I to them. After an all day, but you sure don't want to join that outfit any more than I do the angels, and if we camp here, we're likely to do both. I didn't see them any more after that until I'd hit the lazy Y, and it started in running cattle in the Soda Springs Valley. There Egan and I rode together those days, and that's how I got to know him pretty well. One day over in the Elm Flat we ran smack on this Texas outfit again, headed north. This time I was on my own range, and I knew where I stood, so I could show a little more curiosity in the case. Well, you got this far, says I. Yes, says they. Where are you headed? Over towards the hills. What to do? Make a ranch, raise some truck, perhaps buy a few cows. They went on. Truck, says I to Larry. It's fine prospects in this country. He sat on his horse looking after them. I'm sorry for them, says he. It must be almighty hard scratching. Well, we rode the range for upwards of two year. In that time we saw our Texas friends, name of Han, two or three times in Willits and heard of them off and on. They bought an old brand of Steve McWilliams for $75, carrying six or eight head of cows. After that, from time to time, we heard of them buying more, two or three head from one man and two or three from another. They branded them all with that McWilliams iron. T.O. So pretty soon we began to see the cattle on the range. Now a good cattleman knows cattle just as well as you know people, and he could tell them about as far off. Horned critters look alike to you, but even in a country supporting a good many thousand head, a man used to the business can recognize most every individual as far as he can see them. Some is better than others at it. I suppose you really have to be brought up to it. So we boys at the Lazy Wide noted all the cattle with the new T.O., and could estimate pretty close that the Hawn outfit might own maybe thirty-five head all told. That was all very well, and nobody had any kick coming. Then one day in the spring, we came across our first sleeper. What's a sleeper? A sleeper is a calf that has been earmarked, but not branded. Every owner had a certain brand, as you know, and then he crops and slits the ears in a certain way, too. 
In that manner, he don't have to look at the brand, except to corroborate the ears, and, as the critter generally sticks his ears up, inquiring like to any one riding up, it's easy to know the brand without looking at it, merely from the earmarks. Once in a great while, when a man comes across an unbranded calf, and it ain't handy to build a fire, he just earmarks it and lets the branding go till later. But it isn't done often, and our outfit at strict orders never to make sleepers. Well, one day in the spring, as I say, Larry and me was riding, when we came across a lazy white cow and calf. The little fellow was earmarked all right, so we rode on, and never would have discovered nothing if a bush rabbit hadn't jumped and scared the calf right across in front of our horses. Then we couldn't help but see that there wasn't no brand. Of course, we roped him and put the iron on him. I took the chance to look at his ears and saw the marking had been done quite recent. So when we got in that night, I reported to Buck Johnson that one of the punchers was getting lazy and sleepering. Naturally, he went after the man who had done it. But every puncher swore up and down and back and across that he'd branded every calf he had a rope on that spring. We put it down that someone was lying and let it go at that. And then about a week later, one of the other boys reported a Triangle H sleeper. The Triangle H was a Goodrich brand, so we didn't have nothing to do with that. Some of them might be sleepering for all we knew. Three other cases of the same kind we happened across that same spring. So far, so good. Sleepers running in such numbers was a little astonishing, but nothing suspicious. Cattle did well that summer, and when we come to round up in the fall, we cut out maybe a dozen of those T.O. cattle that had strayed out of that hauling country. Of the dozen, there was five grown cows and seven yearlings. My Lord, Jed, says Buck to me, they's a heap of these youngsters coming over our way. But still, as a young critter is more apt to stray than an old one that's got his range established, we didn't lay no great store by that neither. The Hans took their bunch, and that's all there was to it. Next spring, though, we found a few more sleepers, and one day we came on a cow that had gone dead lame. That was usual, too, but Buck, who was with me, had something on his mind. Finally, he turned back and roped her and threw her. Look here, Jed, says he. What do you make of this? I could see where the hind legs below the hawks had been burned. Looks like somebody had roped her by the hind feet, says I. Might be, says he. But her heels lame that way makes it look more like hobbles. So we didn't say nothing more about that neither, until just by luck we came on another lame cow. We threw her too. Well, what do you think of this one? Buck Johnson asked me. The feet is pretty well tore up, says I, and down to the quick. But I've seen them tore up just as bad on the rocks when they come down out of the mountains. You say what that meant, don't you? You see, a rustler will take a cow and hobble her, or lame her so she can't follow, and then he'll take her calf a long ways off and brand it with his iron. Of course, if we was to see a calf of one brand following of a cow with another, it would be just too easy to guess what had happened. We rode on mighty thoughtful. There couldn't be much doubt that cattle rustlers was at work. The sleepers they had earmarked hoping that no one would discover the lack of a brand. Then after the calf was weaned and quit following of his mother, the rustler would brand it with his own iron and change its earmark to match. It made a nice easy way of getting together a bunch of cattle cheap. But it was pretty hard to guess offhand who the rustlers might be. There were a lot of renegades down towards the Mexican line who made a raid once in a while, and a few oilers living near had water holes in the foothills, and any amount of little cattle holders like this T.O. outfit, and any of them wouldn't shy very hard at a little sleeper and on the side. Buck Johnson told us all to watch out, and pass the word quiet among the big owners to try and see whose cattle seemed to have too many calves for the number of cows. The Texas outfit I'm telling you about had settled up in this double R canyon where I showed you those natural corrals this morning. They'd built them adobe, and cleared some land, and planted a few trees, 
and made an irrigated patch for alfalfa. Nobody never rode over this way very much, cause the country was most too rough for cattle, and our ranges lay further to the southward. Now, however, we began to extend our riding a little. I was down towards Dos Cabezas to look over the cattle there, and they used to send Larry up into the double R country. One evening he took me to one side. Look here, Jed, says he. I know you pretty well, and I'm not ashamed to say that I'm all new at this cattle business. In fact, I haven't been at it more than a year. What should be the proportion of cows to calves, anyhow? There ought to be about twice as many cows as there are calves, I tells him. Then, with only about fifty head of growing cows, there ought not to be an equal number of yearlings? I should say not, says I. What are you driving at? Nothing yet, says he. A few days later, he tackled me again. Jed, says he, I'm not good like you fellows are at knowing one cow from another, but there's a calf down there branded T.O. that I'd pretty near swear I saw with an X.Y. cow last month. I wish you could come down with me. We got that fixed easy enough, and for the next month rammed around through this broken country looking for evidence. I saw enough to satisfy me to a moral certainty, but nothing for a sheriff, and, of course, we couldn't go shoot up a peaceful rancher on mere suspicion. Finally, one day, we run on a four-months' calf, all by himself, with a T.O. iron onto him. A mighty healthy-looking calf, too. Wonder where his mother is, says I. Maybe it's a doggie, says Larry Egan. We call his calves whose mothers have died doggies. No, says I. I don't hardly think so. A doggie is always undersized and poor, and he's laying around water holes, and he always has a big sway belly onto him. No, this is no doggie. And if it's an honest calf, there sure ought to be a T.O. cow around somewhere. So we separated to have a good look. Larry rode up on the edge of a little rim rock. In a minute I saw his hoss jump back, dodging a rattlesnake or something, and then fall back out of sight. I jumped my hoss up there terrible quick and looked over, expecting to see nothing but mangled remains. It was only about fifteen foot down, but I couldn't see bottom, count of some brush. Are you all right, I yells. Yes, yes, cries Larry. But for the love of God, get down here as quick as you can. I hopped off my hoss and scrambled down somehow. Hurt, says I, as soon as I lit. Not a bit. Look here. There was a dead cow with a lazy Y on her flank. And a bullet hole in her forehead, adds Larry. And look here. That teal calf was bald-faced, and so was this cow. Reckon we found a sleeper, says I. So there we was. Larry had to lead his caballo down the barranca to the main canyon. I followed along on the rim, waiting till a place gave me a chance to get down too, or Larry a chance to get up. We were talking back and forth, when, all at once, Larry shouted again. Big game this time, he yells. Here's a cave and a mountain lion squalling in it. I slid down to him at once, and we drew our six shooters and went up to the cave opening right under the rim rock. There, sure enough, were fresh lion tracks, and we could hear a little faint crying, like a woman. First chance, claims Larry, and dropped to his hands and knees at the entrance. Well, damn me, he cries, and crawls in at once, paying no attention to me, telling him to be more cautious. In a minute he backs out, carrying a three-year-old goat. We seem to be in for adventures today, says he. Now where do you suppose that came from, and how did it get here? Well, says I, I followed lion tracks where they've carried yearlings across their backs like a fox does a goose. They're terrible strong. But where did she come from, he wonders. As for that, says I, don't you remember now that T.O. Outfit had a yearling kid when it came into the country? That's right, says he. It's only a mile down the canyon. I'll take it home. They must be most distracted about it. So I scratched up to the top where my pony was waiting, 
it was a terrible hard climb, and I most had to have hooks on my eyebrows to get up at all. It's easier to slide down than to climb back. I dropped my gun out of my holster, and she went way to the bottom. But I wouldn't have gone back for six guns. Larry picked it up for me. So we went along, me on the rim rock and around the broncos, and Larry in the bottom, carrying of the kid. By and by we came to the ranch house, stopped to wait. The minute Larry hove in sight, everybody was out to once, and in two winks the woman had that baby. They didn't see me at all, but I could hear, plain enough, what they said. Larry told how he had found her in the cave, and all about the lion tracks, and the woman cried and held the kid close to her, and thanked him about forty times. Then when she'd wore the edge off a little, she took the kid inside to feed it or something. Well, says Larry, still laughing, I must hit the trail. You say you found her up the double R, asks Han. Was that cave near the three cottonwoods? Yes, says Larry. Where'd you get into the canyon? Oh, my hoss slipped off into the bronca just above. The bronca just above, repeats Han, looking straight at him. Larry took one step back. You ought to be almighty glad I got into the canyon at all, says he. Han stepped up, holding out his hand. That's right, says he. You done us a good turn there. Larry took his hand. At the same time, Han pulled his gun and shot him through the middle. It was all so sudden and unexpected that I stood there paralyzed. Larry fell forward, the way a man mostly will when he's hit in the stomach, but somehow he jerked loose a gun and got it off twice. He didn't hit nothing, and I reckon he was dead before he hit the ground. And there he had my gun, and I was about as useless as a pocket in a shirt. No, sir, you can talk as much as you please, but the killer is a low-down, honorary scrub, and he don't hesitate at no treachery or ingratitude to keep his carcass safe. Jed Parker ceased talking. The dusk had fallen in the little room, and dimly could be seen the recumbent figures lying at ease on their blankets. The ranch foreman was sitting bolt upright, cross-legged. A faint glow from his pipe barely distinguished his features. What became of the wrestlers? I asked him. Well, sir, that is the queer part. Hunt himself, who had done the killing, skipped out. We got our warrants, of course, but they never got served. He was a sort of half-outlaw from that time, and was killed finally in the train hold-up of 97. But the other was retried for rustling. We didn't have much of a case as the law went then, and they'd have gone free if the woman hadn't turned evidence against them. The killing was too much for her. And as the president held good in a lot of other rustling cases, Larry's death was really the beginning of law and order in the cattle business. We smoked. The last light suddenly showed red against the grimy window. Wendy Bill rose and looked out the door. Boy, said he, returning, she's cleared off. We can get back to the ranch tomorrow. This is the end of chapter 4.